This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. So I just kept running into that problem. Publishers thought it was maybe going to be a niche book, but then I was surprised by how many really young readers were connecting with it, either because they have their own questions about their own gender identity or just because they just really like the book. <laughs> and something I was thinking about when I was writing the book too is that I want this to be something that you could trick your conservative dad into buying for you if you see it at the bookstore and you're like, oh, good, you know, it's got a princess in the title. Like, that's great. So maybe it's just a little under the radar. So maybe it'll be a, a thing later on once people have caught on. My name is Jen Wang, and I am a modern minority. Welcome to Modern Minorities. This is a show about work and life told through the lens of what makes each of us different. I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese-American girl born and raised in New York City. And I'm Roman Segal, an Indian-American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. Through conversations with some really interesting people, we uncover the stories, perspectives, and often unspoken truths about how our guests uniquely experience the world. It doesn't matter where you're from, the color of your skin, or who you love. We're all minorities somehow, but we're no one's model minority. This is a show about all of you, for all of us. On today's show, we're talking to award-winning graphic novel author and illustrator Jen Wang. Yeah, it was a great conversation about being different and the art of creation and, you know, just figuring out who you want to be in this world. Uh, speaking of being different, Sharon, what, what's wrong with your voice? I have a cold. Just kidding. I'm not Sharon. <laughs> no shit, Sherlock. I know that it's friend of the pod and my other podcast, Quarantine Comics, co-host with the most, Ryan Joe. What I don't have in Sharonness, I try to make up for an enthusiasm. Anyway, Sharon can't be here because she's stealing a document from the National Archives, so I'm here instead. I read comics, both indie and otherwise, uh, and Roman offered me five bucks and a donut to do this, so I figured, why not? I'm hungry. Could always use a little money as well. Also, we don't talk about comics enough anyway, so, you know, just once a week. So I figured, hell, why not make it twice? Well, and usually when we talk about comics, we don't get the opportunity to talk to the actual creators of said comics. And it's a great excuse on my other pod to have these conversations because I've been a big fan of Jen Wang's for a really long time. She's an award winning best-selling author and illustrator of a lot of graphic novels for young readers, books like Stargazing, The Prince and the Dressmaker, In Real Life, and Coco Be Good. And she's just really active in the comic book community. And she has a very interesting background. There's a lot of stuff in some of her books that's autobiographical in nature about being raised Asian American, but also some of her own experiences. It was a blast to be able to reach out to her and have a deeper conversation about her life and influence. Yeah, it was a really great conversation because she had a very unconventional journey. And she made a lot of decisions along the way that you wouldn't have think would lead her into being a comics creator. So we're going to talk about that, as well as what goes through her mind as she's creating her really introspective books. 
Yeah, I cannot recommend some of these books enough. I reread them again right before we talked to Jen. And, you know, um, somehow my eyes started watering. So get ready. And we hope you enjoy Ryan and my chat with our new friend, Jen. Jen, welcome to the pod. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. So Jen, some folks have read your books and you're pretty well known because there's a lot of personal perspective in those books. But I guess the question I want to ask first is like, where are you from? So I am from the Bay Area. I grew up there. My parents are from Taiwan. They immigrated here in the 80s. And yeah, I grew up in the Bay Area where there were a lot of other Asian Americans. And so that's the backdrop of what my book Stargazing is about, the experience when you are one of many, many other Asian American kids and how that defines how you think about yourself. And if you don't feel like you're absolutely like all the other kids then like what does that make you are you more asian or less asian <laughs> and those are all things i, I thought about every day yeah yeah and so that was a thing i thought about a lot growing up and so yeah so that's i guess where i'm from well that was actually something that really struck me uh, about stargazing was that you show different types of asian americans what does it mean to be asian american and really digging into that i guess diaspora there's that one panel where one character mentions about a friend not asian or something like that mm -hmm. was there a moment when you became aware of the different types of asian americans or that it's just not a homogenized community I don't know if there was an exact moment, but I, I know that like just in elementary school, maybe even before that, like but there were other Asian kids. There were Japanese kids, there were Filipino kids and Indian kids. So they all have different backgrounds and you would go to someone's house and it would be very different, even though there's certain things in common. But I know that maybe for me, I remember my mom pointing out what the differences were. <laughs> and so those were all things that like... <laughs> Wait, well, how did mom do that? I have to know. Well, okay, so you'd be like, oh, so-and-so was like Korean and probably stuff that just like culturally, just like mm -hmm. the foods and it's like, oh, like my coworker, so-and-so like likes to eat really spicy food and I, I don't eat spicy food. It, it was all just like little cultural things like that. But I didn't really quite understand beyond just like the language differences for a long time. So it's all just like stuff you eventually absorb from what other people tell you. <laughs> I feel yeah. like my mom could totally do it based on last name. Again, this is around like oh, brown yeah. people though, but like it's like, oh, what's so and so's last name? And down to like the village, she would know where oh, they wow. were from. But but then when we got outside of the South Asian crowd, the blind spots started to emerge, right? Like yeah. knowledge of East Asian. And again, over time that started to change. Did your parents interact with a lot of other like people in the same Taiwanese American cohort? Or was California's very different, I'd imagine, than Alabama was in the 70s yeah. and 80s when we grew up. Yeah, I think there were a number of people that were just because there is like such a big variety of like immigrants of different like East Asian backgrounds in the Bay Area and even through school, like just my classmates, there would be other Chinese or Taiwanese American kids and then and we would meet their families that way. And then my parents would also befriend the parents. So yeah, my parents were very into just socializing with, with other immigrant parents from Taiwan, especially. They're Buddhists. And so they had like a little Buddhist, like, I don't know, study group, you would call it, like where they would just get together on weekends and then just, I guess, like 
talk about Buddhism and stuff. <laughs> what did you do? Were you like watching TV in the other room or actually were you, yes, were you... yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There was a lot of just like Saturday TV watching while that was happening. Yeah, was was there a big difference between like the way like Mandarin speakers interacted with like Cantonese speakers? I, the reason I ask is I recently learned that my mom tried to form a Chinese school in Northern California, mm-hmm. but there's a disagreement over whether to teach Cantonese or Mandarin. And consequently, I think no one learned anything. So I'm curious if that was something you experienced or, or you were aware of in your upbringing. Yeah. So I only speak some Mandarin and that was the primary Chinese language that was spoken in, in my household. But my mom actually speaks several different dialects. So she speaks the Taiwanese dialect, Mandarin and Cantonese, just like I guess she just, where she grew up, there was just like more exposure (laughs) to all the different dialects. And so I really wanted to try to learn more of it, but because I just like didn't have enough people speaking all the different dialects around me, like I only absorbed Mandarin. So I was aware that there were differences and I don't know, I I guess there is this sense of Mandarin starting to crowd out some of the other ones. So like Cantonese has like fallen out of... I don't know, not popularity, but like maybe favor, right? Because there's like a strong push for for Mandarin. So so I don't know. I wish I, I knew more <laughs> to keep all those languages circulating. Yeah. What did you want to be when you grew up? Oh, so I mean, I think I always wanted to do something storytelling related. Mm-hmm. I didn't have a word for that, but I got really into cartoons, obviously, when I was a kid, like every other kid. But I did mm-hmm. sort of start to discover comics later in around like high school or so, because yeah. I had a friend oh. who was Japanese and, and read manga and could uh-huh. like introduce me to that stuff. But I was into books. I thought I could do maybe like picture book illustration or I I was pretty sure that I was going into animation because I was like obsessed with cartoons and and animated movies like I watched all the Disney movies my first like big obsession (laughs) was probably the little mermaid and I was just like (laughs) I drew so many mermaids and uh, yeah I I was aware that like that's a job like that's like a thing that people grow up and do so I thought that I was going to go to animation school and then work for Disney or whatever company would be around (laughs) by the time I grew up (laughs) and uh, yeah I wanted to do something that was related to making a cartoon in the broadest sense. Were you always a good artist? Were you always just naturally artistically inclined? Or was that something that you really had to, to work at? I I guess I would say that I was always interested in it. So I spent a lot of time on it. I hesitate to say whether I was good or not <laughs> at different points in my life. But I, being good at it wasn't really as much of a concern to me as just like doing it like I just like to to draw and, and writing I like to just write little stories that I would do illustrations for so yeah both of those things combined was what I wanted to get at and I didn't actually realize that you could do comics until later when I discovered that comics are like awesome <laughs> I, I gotta ask though how did your parents feel about this because as a kid who had the same obsession with story and art Mm-hmm. My parents only supported it up until a point, if that makes sense. Like, and obviously our, our paths have diverged significantly. Like, but what what were mom and dad's points of view when you're you're drawing and you're obsessed with these cartoons and these comics? They were pretty supportive, or maybe also to a point. Like, they didn't 
I guess we never really talked about like art school or like what happens like after you aren't a kid anymore. <laughs> but um, I would just go to normal art classes and stuff when I was a kid and they were supportive because it seemed to, it made me happy and I seemed to like it a lot. And they were also pretty proud and impressed with just all the the little drawings and stories I was doing. Like, oh, it's a cool little novelty thing <laughs> that your kid does. They never really pushed the whole becoming a doctor or lawyer thing too much, which I am very thankful for. They just didn't know what to do. And they imagined that as I got older, I would just naturally do something that made sense, whatever that, that means. <laughs> so yeah, there was a point in high school when it was time to apply for colleges. And I brought up the possibility of art school and they did this like, like, if like, this is really what would make you happy, <laughs> we'll talk about it. But maybe you want to think about it since you're very young and there's like your whole life ahead of you. And I, I ended up applying to Cal Arts, which is like the main the kind UC of school down yet. here. Yeah, where, where you can learn animation. And most of the people who are in the animation programs are able to like get jobs even before graduating because there's just studios is right there <laughs> just like waiting for people to come in and, and get like entry level jobs. And I actually didn't get into the school. And so in my mind, I was like, oh, well, then maybe this is a sign that I shouldn't be doing this. And I, I don't know, I actually got really nervous toward the end. This whole time, like my whole life, I was like expecting to just go into this whole like career of, of being an animator or, or something. But once I actually got there, um, I was like, well, I don't know, like, do I want to do this for the rest of my life? Is that like, like, is that really a good idea? So I ended up just going to a regular liberal arts college. I went to San Francisco State University. <laughs> and that was actually a really good decision for me that I made for myself. And a lot of people ask if that was something that my parents pressured me to do. And that was definitely not the case. I was not really influenced by what they wanted for me because they were nervous about like pressuring me too much either way. Um, they hoped that I would probably end up having like a government job or something, <laughs> but like, but it's well, like, not, if, not doctor or lawyer, but government. Yeah. Actually, my dad was really into like, oh, get a government job because then you'll have good benefits. You know? Oh, that's yeah. actually true. Great health insurance too. My uncle was a mailman and he always boasted that he would get the same health insurance that the congressman would get. Yeah. <laughs> he actually does. <laughs> Yeah, no, every, yeah, every job I would ever get, my parents, when I would tell them, it's like, does it come with benefits? And I'm like, yes, mom. And parents are teachers, right? It's like, that was the thing. If not yeah. doctor, lawyer, benefits. Yeah, yeah. So that was my dad's whole thing was like, get a government job. <laughs> yeah, you don't have to be you don't have to be a doctor or a lawyer, but like, you got to get those good benefits. But you yeah. didn't. So and but you didn't go down the like, the Disney animator path. Mm -hmm. You didn't get that sweet, sweet government job with the benefits you somehow still found your way into the storytelling space. Like, was it just a slow realization over time? Or was it like, how did you make that jump? Or did you just kind of like, slowly get into the deep end? It was just always a part of my life. So it was hard to just cut it out altogether. Like I continued to do comics, even while I was in college, not doing anything art related. 
And it, because it, it was like this ongoing part of my life, I had like friends that I met online that were also car cartoonists who were doing web comics. That that's what I was up to <laughs> in high school, at least. And just like socially, I was very involved in comics and art scene. I was still going to like zine fests and stuff like that. And so, after school, I just felt like I wanted to pursue just doing a book just to get everything out of my system maybe and then I, maybe I could move on with my life and that ended up being my first book that I ended up finding a publisher for Coco and be good yeah 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 so that was more just like a thing that I knew that I was always going to do and I was trying to move away from that if that makes any sense because I felt like maybe I could be more <laughs> in my life than just like a person who's like still doing these like comics at least that's how I felt in college and in my like early 20s it's like maybe I can like overcome this part of me that's like just identifies so strongly as like a cartoonist or an artist why did you want to overcome that it seems awesome like you seem to have like a dream job for a lot of people why well I guess what would be more in the early Gen Wong context yeah I just felt like I I didn't want to spend my life just sitting my drawing table and I also felt very sheltered and hermity <laughs> and just all, all the things that you associate with this more isolated artist type person. And I felt like I wanted to expand my experiences at that time in my life. And I didn't want to be stuck as being the same person for the rest of my life. And especially with the animation stuff, like animation went through lots of ups and downs where there'd be like booms when there's like a lot of different studios and projects and then like like periods where there's not much going on and people are out of work and I was just nervous to be involved in things that I may not want to do in like <laughs> 15 years 20 years as a career and so I felt like well I know that there are other interests that I have in in life and I want to be able to explore those things while I'm still young and not when I'm I guess like stuck right caught and, into the trappings of yeah, life right yeah, yeah. well I yeah. want to ask a question about some of your your work I, I've read most of it and again because I just accidental discovery and Ryan and I talk about this a lot on our other show but something that always struck me and I don't remember which of your books I read first but as I went back, and I always look at the published date when I start reading a lot of works by an artist, is the first two books that I understood that you made was Coco Be Good in 2010 and in real life 2014, which got you a lot of acclaim. And every single book has character conflict, which is great. But there's a more edgy nature to what the characters experience and versus in Prince and the Dressmaker, Stargazing, there's a sweetness to the conflict, I guess is what I'd say. Mm -hmm. And did something change in your perspective as a creator, as just a human living on this earth, as you were publishing your first graphic novels versus the more recent ones you've done? Hmm. That's a, yeah, I actually haven't thought about it that way before. I would say maybe, Coco's, I don't know. Coco's not as nice as the characters in Stargate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I think maybe just being like just being older <laughs> in, <laughs> and soft in your old age okay yeah okay. yeah being softer but maybe also the characters tend to be younger now in my newer books and in my older they're teenagers books. in your older books yeah 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 maybe 
part of it is I was doing books for myself and maybe like readers who are more adult when I was starting mm. out. And mm. then as I more formally segue into like young adult and middle grade mm -hmm. and children's mm -hmm. literature, it's not so much that kids don't experience negativity <laughs> or like the darker aspects of human behavior, but I, I felt maybe more sympathetic to them in, in a d different way. And so maybe I just applied more of like a sweetness <laughs> to the characters. And it might just be the projects themselves. I'm currently working on, on something that's like a little more, maybe what you would consider more like edgy as far as the character's <laughs> like behavior goes. So yeah, so maybe it's just that Stargazing and Prince of the Dressmaker, just I, I thought of them in a very sweet way. <laughs> well, you made me cry, so you know, mission accomplished. <laughs> well, when you started the Prince and the Dressmaker, you, you, you drew them, the two characters, as adults initially, and then you decided to revert them to, to teenagers. Did that change the way you, you approached the way they were written? I Probably. It was a little before I got... I got like too far in the process. So like, I, I don't even really remember <laughs> like some of the ways that I might've thought about them differently. When you're younger, everything is just so new and so big and, and there's like so much more room to, to make mistakes. Like part of that sweetness and being naive, just like works its way into younger characters. Whereas like older characters, maybe there's, there's a different complexity right? Because you are able to make decisions that you know the consequences for. Mm. But yeah, making them younger just, just felt more emotional because so much about it is experiencing something for the first time. How have your family and friends reacted to some of this work that you put out there? I mean, obviously, everyone's nice and supportive, I would assume. But like, <laughs> once you scratch beneath that, like, does your mom say, why'd you say that? Or what have like the personal reactions been to some of this from within your circle? As far as family goes, like I, I don't think my dad has read my books, which is fine. <laughs> like he's not, he, he's not, he's not against them. He just doesn't understand like comics. <laughs> uh -huh. So he's very supportive for just like the idea of what I'm doing, but I don't think he really knows how to read the books. So he's like, fine. Like, like I'm just, I'm, I'm happy for you. She's making money my day. doing this. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and my mom has read the books. She liked The Prince and the Dressmaker. She liked Stargazing. I know she had some thoughts about what else I could have included in Stargazing. Probably because... a lot more autobiography to it, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. She's like, oh, like, what about like this thing? Or like, maybe this aspect of your childhood. And I'm like, no, 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 this is a different book. These are fictional characters. So yeah. <laughs> <not> so, you, <laughs> mom. <laughs> Yeah. One of the things about stargazing, of course, is one of the, the female characters, Moon, has a tumor, and that obviously is something that affected your early life. When you went into the story initially, was that something that you were aware that you were going to draw on, or is that something that you just decided, okay, I'm going to add this element from my own life into the narrative? Uh, yeah, I came, I, I, I included it like after I decided that I was going to do a story like stargazing. I didn't think about it as being related to the themes that I wanted to talk about in Stargazing, because it, it was just like, I, I had a tumor <laughs> when I was a kid. And it, it's a very specific part of my life that I just like, I didn't really have other things that I attached to it. Whereas this whole thing about being Asian American and what it was like growing up, like that gets whole own category. Right. And so I was like, those weren't really related, but I don't even remember how it came up. But I, I just thought like, oh, what if this is like, a good way to talk about like like I wanted to bring in like the visions that Moon sees as like a way of the um, talking about 
Yeah. yeah, just like how we talk about like how we create our own stories for ourselves and how Moon's visions like help her understand who she is. It, it makes her feel like she has a connection to something, even though she doesn't really quite relate to the other kids at school. And so the, the visions are like an explanation to her for why she is the way she is. And I just felt like, oh, the tumor didn't exactly play this role in my life. But I feel like this can work, like, and it's a way to weave in something that is also very personal to me that I haven't really been able to talk about anywhere. Like, not even many of my friends didn't know that this happened to me. So it was a way to weave in a another personal part of my childhood, but also expand on the themes that I wanted to talk about in the book. What percentage of you do you feel relates to Moon versus Christine? So Moon being the girl who has the tumor the cool, fun, crazy, not sure what she's going to do one. And Christine is the classic Asian American going to Chinese school, going to church, <laughs> et cetera. Like, uh, do you, I, we're all equal parts moon and Christine in our life, right? Like, mm -hmm. how do you feel like you're split between those two types of people? Yeah. So what ended up happening was, so I originally intended to write it from Moon's perspective, mm -hmm. but I felt like, because it would be easier, just like on the surface, I have more in common with Moon. I was like the, the one who's like more artistic and was like vegetarian and, you know, has a little tumor. Jumping around and dancing to K-pop as well. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I just felt like there was something wrong with that because it was too easy to identify with Moon and too easy to demonize Christine and make any Anything that Christine did just like just like to see everything she, that she did in a negative light and so I felt like what would be most healing for me since the whole the whole idea of the book is about how you relate to the other Asian American kids right like in your life is to switch perspectives to writing more from Christine's perspective to just just like be able to see kind of more of like how I do relate to her right? Christine has like a bit of a perfectionist streak. She tries to be very reasonable and responsible. And th those are all things that I, I do identify with. <laughs> and yeah, it just made me so much more sympathetic to her. And it helped me overcome my own, like, I, I guess, maybe like discomfort, right? And like prejudices, I guess, within my own community, right? Like the way I feel about like kids who were more academically oriented than me, or were just on a different track than me. The better violin players, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because like, I used to think of them as very different than me. And then writing from Christine's perspective, I could sort of like, just bridge that gap and like understand them as just like a kid who is also just trying very hard to like, to do yeah. the right things in life. You've had such an interesting career, but you've also been a minority in many different ways in your career, not just as an Asian American creator, but as a female. And I guess YA graphic novels, I don't know what the split is, but Ryan and I on our other podcast, we read a lot of like the quote unquote greats of independent comic works and superhero works. And it's like a white male, American, British dominated field. How have you navigated that? Like, have you seen changes in the industry? as a female and as a minority creator in, in the comic book industry? Yeah, there's definitely been changes in the past like 10 years, maybe even 20 years. <laughs> Just the fact that there are things like YA middle grade books that are there for kids is already like a big change, right? Mm -hmm. But yeah, before for any creator that is like not white or cis male, more 
there's just more out there because there are more readers, there are more ways of distributing your books. Like you can just put them online, right? So uh, like online comics has like changed a lot of the industry just because now there's like stuff that people are gravitating towards, right? Just like on their own. Um, organically without needing a publisher. Yeah, I feel like for me, I feel very sheltered in a lot of ways because I never had to go through this more like mainstream channels or like the parts of the industry that are the more traditional Marvel DC. That's just like, those were the jobs that you mm-hmm, mm-hmm, had mm-hmm. to have before, but I, I never had to do that. And I came up just putting things online and meeting a lot of other creators uh, that were just like me <laughs> either they were they i feel were... like there's this whole cohort of like amazing female ya creators like lucy nisley and the creator of smile Raina telgemeier i feel like there's yeah, just yeah. a cohort of you guys that are all like coming up together right now yeah and, and it keeps coming there's this newer just like fresher cartoonists all the time who are just doing whatever makes sense for them and putting them online or making mini comics and going to zine fests and stuff. So I've always felt very protected, (laughs) maybe from (laughs) some of the worst parts of the comic industry, because there's other peers around who are doing their own thing. And it's definitely, there are a lot of problems that are still there. And there's like the comics gate stuff, which was a little bit like Gamergate, but maybe because I haven't really dipped into that part of the industry, I feel a little shielded from it but it's definitely there and like even even amongst indie comics there's a lot of behaviors but at least there is a sense there i don't know like that that there are other people who are like there to protect you right like because they're your peers and they are also people of color they're also women queer non-binary people and so yeah i i don't know i it still needs to improve but it's it's getting better and I definitely don't feel like I have to tell a young creator if you if mm-hmm. there's like a teenager who wants to get into comics I I don't ever feel like I have to say like oh be careful it's like <laughs> no like there's a lot of really fun stuff out there and and I I don't think there's anything that that should be holding them back as far as some of the like worst things that you do see on the internet <laughs> Yeah. When you when it comes to like just improving the industry, the indie comics scene, like what would you like to see change? Um, I don't know. I, I guess like it the publishing model is still very limited because it's a business and it, like the books that are published are definitely geared towards books they think they can sell, right? And there are a lot of comics out there that, that are really great and deserve more more of an audience, but it's just I, I don't really have the answer for that. It's, it's like a capitalism problem. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, it's like give the, give the people what they want. And that's a dangerous thing because then we never change. We never hear those other perspectives. Yeah, yeah. Like there are a lot of comics that are maybe not on the surface. They're maybe they don't have the right look or it's like not the coolest topic. And then maybe there's like a couple mini comics made, but people aren't really going to see those things. And I just wish there was like a better model to have more... I don't know, like give more exposure to stories that that are worthwhile. On the surface, when we look at your last two books, Stargazing and The Prince and the Dressmaker, Stargazing, I can understand how a book like that got greenlit. This personal story, 
that dives into Asian identity by an Asian creator. Like I can imagine the guy looking at the spreadsheet being like, yes, that one. (laughs) (laughs) But, But then the prince and the dressmaker, not so much. Like it is this... Uh, it's a story that has a very different take, a very different perspective that is not one a lot of us experience. And to to something you were saying earlier, like it's an experience people need to hear about and to read to understand other points of view. Why are people coming at the world this way? Because it's not something I personally experienced. I guess the question is like, how'd you get that one through? (laughs) Because like, (laughs) barely. (laughs) Talk about the barely. Why not? Like, what was the pushback? So like, so this when I pitched the Prince and the Dressmaker, this was 2014. So... And can you give us the pitch for people who have not read the book really quick? Okay, yeah. So Prince and the Dressmaker is about a 19th century prince who likes to wear dresses and hires a dressmaker to make those dresses. And obviously this is a big conflict because this is against the wishes of the king and the queen and society at large, right? Right, right. So yeah, so that so that's the the basic pitch. It's it's very like it's a fairy tale princess Disney fantasy thing, but just like with a bit of a gender theme to it. But yeah, when I pitched it, it was 2014. It was obviously like gender identity, and it, it, it's like a thing that people are thinking about, but it wasn't super duper like publishing mainstream, and neither was the more fantasy fairy tale type thing like at the time publishers were only interested in reality based stuff at least for YA books and contemporary stuff and so it was just very off of off theme i guess for like what was selling at the time and there's like like the the problem with publishing trends is is like three books sell really well and then everything mm-hmm. that is greenlit for the next couple of years is just the same in zone, yeah. stuff and there are really good books that come out of that, but but there's it's just harder for books that are not quite that to to push. Nobody through. wants another Da Vinci Code, though, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I was like stuck in that. You know, I I thought in my mind I was like, wow, like a lot of people would want to read this. <laughs> like it felt mainstream to me compared to other things I'd pitched in the past, but I didn't understand publishing, and so it was a struggle. <laughs> like all the editors would say, we really like the story, we just don't think we can really sell it or it's not the type of thing that works for our not that there's anything wrong with it yeah 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 so i i I just kept running into that problem and and also this was like a little before the like ya boom in graphic novels so Uh there just weren't that many options where there weren't there weren't that many publishers who were like doing that so i really believed in the project because i felt like no but like all my friends say that they would love this book (laughs) so like everybody (laughs) everybody that i know that i'm pitching it to is like excited about it so it just kept pushing and then my publisher that i've actually done like multiple books with they were like okay but they thought it was maybe going to be a niche book but then just like all the the press releases off like tumblr and and, and social media at the time like did really well and so they started to come around to it by the time the book came out and then it did well and so ironically i don't know if it's still the case but there was a period after the prince of the dressmaker came out that like that was like one of those books that other editors tried to like like we want more books like this and, <laughs> and, and it yeah. actually it well it was both vindicating but also really upsetting to me because it's like well that's not what the lesson is right yeah, it's like yeah, exactly. the point is i want there to be other books 
that are like that we really like when we when we see the pitch but Mm -hmm. are just off of whatever is like trending right now and i guess it's nice but that's not really what i wanted to happen (laughs) did you hear back from any of the editors who rejected it and i'm just also curious when your fans or when readers responded to you were there any responses that you found really surprising as far as the editors go, like it, it wasn't like they didn't like it. They just they couldn't get the marketing departments or whatever the higher powers <laughs> to like <laughs> to really invest in it. So the other editors that we tried to pitch to, they, they were all like, "Oh, I wish we were able to do this." And as far as readers go, I was just really surprised by how many just like really young kids were into it because I, I thought it was going to be something for more like a teenage audience, and it, I made it. It's if you are old enough to like watch a Disney princess movie, you could read The Prince and the Dressmaker. There's nothing like mm-hmm. super mm-hmm. objectionable in, in my mind. Right. And I don't know, like I just I was surprised by how many like really young readers were connecting with it, either because they have their own questions about their own gender identity or just because they just really like the book. <laughs> and I'm always just surprised by kids who are younger than you're thinking of, like really being able to like understand and appreciate something that you make. I, I don't want to dwell on this, but as a kid of the conservative South, who's not <laughs> of the conservative <laughs> South anymore, right? I can imagine all the like clenched fist to your chest aunties and moms reading this or hearing about this or discovering Mm -hmm. it was in their kids' libraries. Was there some pushback? Was there some controversy? Were you the next person ruining our kids? And and how did you react to that? So, so far, if that exists, I have been shielded from that like something i was thinking about when i was writing the book too is that i want this to be something that you could trick your conservative dad into buying for you if you you see it at the bookstore (laughs) and you're like good it's got a princess in the title like that's great fine and it's like pink so so maybe maybe it's just like a little under the radar it doesn't have like i don't know just like a super obvious thing going on when you're flipping through it so i don't know so maybe it'll be a a thing later on once people have like caught on (laughs) that is so subversively legit i love that yeah (laughs) so jen if you were to talk to your younger self that little girl in california watching cartoons What would you tell her from today to back then? I guess I would just say, like, don't, don't stress. (laughs) Like, (laughs) there's like so many times in your life that you will be like stressed out about like what you should do or, and to just, I don't know, I guess just continue trying to do what you think is right and what you enjoy. And like, you don't, even if things don't work out, like you'll still be able to draw and write and do the things that you like to do. Right. Like that's always going to be a part of you. And that's something I try to tell to tell kids who are asking about like being a cartoonist. Right. Because they want to know, like, how do I do this thing? Like, do I need to go to the right schools? Do I need to do whatever? And the thing to to remind yourself is that like, well, you're already an artist if you're doing these things. Right. Like, I can't predict the future. I can't tell you that everything's going to work out as far as like a career goes, but you'll always be able to do it. People we're doing comics before YA graphic novels existed. And that's, that's the important thing. Jen, I've had so much fun with this conversation, but I don't know, Ryan, do you think uh, she's ready for speed round? (laughs) I mean, I don't know, man. I'm nervous. (laughs) 
No one's ever ready for speed round. No one's ever ready for speed round. <laughs> All right, here we go. What's one thing about you no one expects? Hmm. I don't know that no one expects this, but I don't Google myself. <laughs> that's. I feel like that's like a thing that like, you just a call lot the of... rest of the world narcissist. That's great. <laughs> no, it's like it's a thing that it's like totally normal for like anybody who's like an author or whatever, or like reading your Goodreads reviews, right? And like I just don't, <laughs> and not because I'm not a narcissist, but it's just that I I'm okay if people don't like my book i i'm okay with that like there are plenty of of like movies and books and things that are out there that are really beloved that i'm like eh, it's not for me and mm. i'm like i don't want to to make everybody like like my book if they don't like it's it's fine as long as it's it's not it's not stuff that is like they think i'm doing something offensive or inappropriate or just like or like, you just put a pink I, cover on them and, and trick them so it's fine yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> yeah so that's smart well, it's probably good for your mental health too yeah i just I, I don't know how people can read their their reviews on like goodreads or amazon or whatever i'm just like oh, just just don't do it <laughs> just don't look at it <laughs> good advice yeah. well speaking of books and movies uh can you recommend a book a movie or even a comic that has characters that you relate to Oh, man. As far as like relating to, I feel like that's tricky because if the story is good, then you can relate to the characters, even though they're very different. I would say a book I really liked that I read this year was it's not like a, a comic, but it's Detransition Baby, which is a novel by the author is Tori Peters. And yeah, it's just about a couple trans women characters. And it's just it's just done so it's so empathetic and it's so understanding of just where all the characters are coming from so even when they're doing really terrible things to each other you really feel for them and i guess i just feel like i know the characters from just like reading this book and i guess that's a way that i don't have like a ton in common with these characters but i just felt like i i knew them and that i understood and sympathized with what what they were going through that's great all right we're Moving on to food, what's your favorite mom dish or dad dish? Dad's cook too. Oh yeah, I really like I really like tomato and egg <laughs> stir fry. It's like it's such a basic, such a a common like Chinese dish, but I just I I can eat it like every day and noodles. I, yeah, I, I got to be ignorant and ask like, how is that different from an omelet? Is there like some Chinese way of doing it that I just don't know about? <laughs> Uh, probably just like the flavoring. I th the thing is, is like it's a very common combination. There's lots of dishes that have both tomatoes and eggs in it. But gotcha. when you just like stir fry it together, the Chinese way, it just tastes <laughs> like that. But Chinese and it's really good. Right. <laughs> it's just really comforting for me. Yeah, I, I'm going to have to um, ask my Chinese American wife about that one because she has not <laughs> revealed that one to me yet. It's, it's is... very basic, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what is your least favorite food? Uh, man, that's tricky. I guess there are a lot of foods I probably just haven't. I'm not super adventurous <laughs> as an as a as an eater. Now bring on the hate. Like, what's the veto thing if it shows up? If it shows up on the plate, I'm not into durian. Yeah, right. that that's, that's just fair. like that's very normal. Yeah, but I'm just like <laughs> I just I tried. I like I bought. I went to a store and bought like a like a durian like wafer candy thing, even just to be like, well, at least this is like a candy, and I like I couldn't just have it like in the house because it smelled, and I was like, I can't eat this. <laughs> Wait, durian fruit, isn't that notoriously, like, odorous? 
Yeah, but people like it. Like everyone in Southeast Asia loves uh, it. Yeah, I don't get it. They're they're wrong. <laughs> people like it. Yeah. So, yeah. All right. So who's someone out there that you would want to interview on a podcast? Oh, man. Okay. So I would love to talk to Ang Lee, the director, oh, wow. someday. I think he's just like super interesting as like a filmmaker, but also just like his, his craft, like how he thinks about like what projects he chooses. I I haven't even seen all his movies. Like I've maybe seen like five of his movies, but I, I've just always followed his career and just how every movie he's done, it, it's like he's trying something new. Like he just loves to make movies and he wants to try it all. And I just find that like so cool. <laughs> Yeah, he's done everything, yeah. right? He did like the Kung Fu, he did the superheroes, he's got mm-hmm. Jane Austen. Broke back. Broke back now. Yeah, and, and he like, I feel like every time he makes a like a pivot like that, it's, he really actually like, he gives it as his all. He swings for the yeah. fences. Yeah. yeah. He's never just kind of like phoning it in or just doing it because it's like his job. Like you, when he made like the Hulk movie, you know, <laughs> even though like, I don't think it was like the best movie, but he was like really trying stuff. And I just have a lot of respect for just how much like gusto he puts into his projects. We should watch Less Caution because Tony Leung is in the news these days. Yeah, yeah. I I thought that was a good movie. It's a little long, but it's it's great. (laughs) So Jen, in closing, what does being a modern minority mean for you? Oh, man. I guess to me, it just feels like just being being whoever you want to be and not thinking too hard about like what that means it's like i guess like something that i i kind of struggle with that i put in stargazing which is like i guess like you are who you are and it doesn't mean that you're more or less of a minority because you like certain things because you have a certain type of background so yeah i guess that's it for me that makes sense. That works. And I, I like how that perspective has informed everything you've written or every perspective you've taken. So, Jen, this has just been a lot of fun. It's it's always a treat to talk to people whose work I admire. Thank you so much. It really means a lot. And I, I hope you'll keep doing the work you do and finding ways to make me cry on my couch and find books for my daughter to read soon. Yeah, yeah. I look forward to, to hearing what your daughter thinks. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe, leave a review, and a five-star rating on your favorite podcasting platform. Now more than ever, people need to be hearing these stories. Please share our show with a friend or three. Want to learn more or got something to share? Visit modmypod.com or email us, hi mom, at modmypod.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at modminpod. We'd love to hear from you. That's it for now. I've been Raman Segal. And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony. Remember, we're all modern minorities out there. We'll talk to you soon. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. 
Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m. and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com.